it's, this is the, the lifeblood of the church we're holding in our hands right here and what we're about to hear. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. You can take your seats. And if I could ask you just to spend a moment of silence in preparation for God's word and just ask the Spirit of God to give you a greater vision and a greater sight as to what God has done, what he's going to do, is contained in this this book. It's just a moment of silence and then I'll pray. Father, I want to ask that you would do what I can't do. And I know that I am humanly incapable of bringing the words of this amazing book to the hearts of your people in a way that just blows their minds. And I know I I have sensed and feel the burden of enabling the church family that I'm a part of to to know and to feel and experience the wonders of these words. And that's what I desire, and yet I also know that I can't do it. And so I I simply ask, and neither can, can my family, unless you meet with us today, unless your spirit just dominates this room and every heart. And so I ask that you would meet with us, and may your word be exalted, and may Christ be exalted in your word, and may we see with new eyes a text and verses that many of us have read for years. And once again, do your work of blowing the doors off of our minds and hearts with this truth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My wife Deanna and I had a had an opportunity, um, the privilege of, of attending a, a dinner that her company put on back in the mid-90s, and it was hosted near the top floor of the, the uh, Sears Tower, um, which was at one time the, the, 
tallest building in the in the world, and now, as I understand it, um, the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere, or very least the United States. Um, it is the tallest structure that I have, man-made structure that I have ever stood in, and um, I will never forget the mental picture that I have of standing in front of this plate glass window on like the 104th floor and staring out over these buildings, which if you're at street level look so big, but when you're on the top of the Sears Tower, it's just they're dwarfed. And you can see out over the, the whole of Chicagoland. It's just, it is a breathtaking view and I'll, I'll never forget it. You can see the layout of the streets and the grids and, and you can see the Chicago River. You can see uh, Lake Michigan just uh, disappear onto the horizon. You look down and you can see uh, glowing arteries of freeways, especially as it got dark. It was just an amazing, breathtaking experience to look through that plate glass window from this high rise and see all of Chicago. Now, I have read the book of Ephesians since I was a boy for years. I've even studied it um, slowly. But I want to share with you that over the past nine months, I have um, slowly, meditatively prayed over the first three chapters. And all I can say is the experience for me has been like going to the top of a divine high rise and looking out and seeing the enormity of redemption laid out for me. And it's so much bigger than I ever thought. And it is so awe-inspiring. In fact, I would sum it up by saying it is nothing less than awesome. And I mean that with the full force of the word. It's awesome. I think my son's generation would say that it's epic. Um, and it is. Um, it's like these chapters are like taking an elevator, elevator of revelation up by the Spirit of God and looking out and seeing what's laid out before us in this thing we call redemption or the plan of, of salvation. And it changes you and it transforms you, this vision of what God has, is, and is going to do. And my purpose and my hope and my prayer um, is to go on a journey with you over the course of the next 12 weeks and to look through the plate glass window of, of what Paul says here in the first three chapters because it's as if he transports you up to the throne of God and looks down and God shows us this is where my plan came from and this is where it's going. And it is a magnificent, immeasurable vision. And I want to go on a journey with you and my prayer is that you will see it and not just see it but savor it in the same way that I've come to it, perhaps even more. And you'll find your life moved and changed and transformed by this life-altering vision that God, that God prevents us through the writing of Paul here in these first three chapters. Now, I've called the, the series The Plan. Um, I've taken that from a couple of key points in the first three chapters. The words actually occur at two key points. But even more frequent than the words The Plan um, are words connected to the idea of a plan. Any plan has a purpose a good plan has a purpose, and if a plan has a purpose, then it is governed by a will. And you're going to find throughout these first three chapters the words purpose, will, and plan strung through the entirety of them all, which is why I've, I've called it the plan. Now, this morning is a bit of a kind of an introduction. I just want to kind of lay the foundation of where we're headed in the next 11 weeks, 12 weeks. 
And um, as such, I'm going to be drawing from, from these three chapters, um, verses out of each, beginning with just wanting to center you and see that this is all about the great plan of redemption laid out, the great plan of salvation. Let me just take you to some texts and show you that this is all about the plan. Ephesians 1.5, Paul writes, He, that is God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Purpose and will. Um, chapter 1, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So you have will, purpose, revealed as a plan for the fullness of time. Chapter 1, verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He's talking about a purpose, his will, and a plan. Now in chapter 3, Paul talks about his own function or place within that great plan. Because every Christian has a place within this great plan. And he talks about it in chapter 3 in this way. And the first verse here is a verse that's written on the back of my door because it reminds me as to the center and most important thing of preaching. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's like he can't be measured. It can't be defined fully. That's, that's how he saw his job and his calling. And he goes on to say, and not as it, only is it to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, but and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then skip to verse 11 where it says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he sees as part of his own apostolic call, like God's mission statement for Paul's life, to preach the unsearchable riches and to bring to light for everybody, including people who would live centuries later, what is the plan of the mystery? He sees that as his calling. And what he does here in the first three chapters is do just that. He brings to light for everyone to see the plan of the mystery. So all these three chapters, he's setting out this mysterious but awesome, immeasurable, and wonderful plan. Hence, it's called the plan. Now what you're going to find, and you'd, you'd see if you even read it quickly, is that this plan is architected, implemented, and executed by the great triune God of the Christian faith. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one God existing in three persons. This great plan is his work. One God in three. Father, Son, and Spirit. Now what I want to do now is, is lay out five aspects of this plan to kind of give us a grounding for the future. The first one's going to go rather quickly, but I felt like it would be a sin if I didn't put it first. Because we're going to come back to it. And that is the plan centers on Jesus. He is the centerpiece of it, and he is the realization of it. Without Jesus, there is no great plan. There is no unsearchable riches. There is nothing immeasurable. It all centers on him. 
I'm back to the, the text that I read a moment ago where Paul writes, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose. Now, here's the thing. This purpose is set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. The very world that we live in, its relationships, both with God and one another and creation, the fragmentation that took place at the fall, the Father is now reuniting in the Son. That is his plan and that is his purpose, but it all comes together in him. And in chapter 3, we see the same idea where it says that the plan was according to the eternal purpose that he, that is God the Father, realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So it centers on him and is realized by him through his death and resurrection. He is the very centerpiece of it. Without him, there is no plan. Now, we're going to talk about that in the future, so I'm going to put that aside. But as I said, I don't think you can talk about this plan without putting Jesus in the first place. It all centers on him and what he did and who he is. The second thing we can say about this particular plan that it comes to light in these three chapters is that it originates in eternity past. That is, this plan of God for redemption, it predates creation. It predates time itself. It predates when God said, let there be light. It predates Genesis 1.1 in the beginning there was, a heaven, the, there was a heavens and there was an earth. It predates everything. It predates creation and it predates the fall. So you have here in verse 4, he says, talking about the people of this plan, says, even as he, the Father, chose us, the people of God, in him, reference to Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before anything was formed, he chose us, in Christ. Now that should correct a false thinking out there that the God of the Bible in the Bible is kind of a plan A, plan B kind of a God or Bible. That God is a backup plan person. I mean, and I know people who put it in this way that well, Genesis 1 and 2, everything's perfect and beautiful. There's no sin. There's no corruption. There's no death. That's the way it was supposed to be. Husband and wife living without a single argument. That's the way it's supposed to be. Plan A. But then the first man and the first woman decided to listen to the voice of a deceiver instead of the voice of the Lord. They decided to go their own path Apart from the goodness of God, and therefore this great thing we call the fall of man happened. Well, now what's the Lord going to do? Plan A is wrecked. So what does the Lord do? He's either got to damn the first couple, or he's got to come up with a backup plan. So then he decides in that moment, I know what I'll do. I love these people. I'll send my son to die as a substitute in their place. He'll suffer their, my wrath for them. That's a backup plan system, a two-plan system. Now, the problem in my judgment with that is that it diminishes the splendor and the glory and the, the greatness and the sovereignty of the, of the God of the Bible. It almost makes him contingent upon what men choose and what they decide. And it almost presents him as someone who's surprised that this happened. I didn't expect this. 
whoops, maybe I shouldn't have made Adam and Eve or put a tree in the middle. At best, I think that kind of makes God a poor planner. Ephesians tells us there's only one plan. Before he ever created, before Genesis 1 and 2 ever took place, he already decided Jesus would come and that he would die for a a people in peril. That was the original plan all along. There is no two plans. There's only one plan. And we're a part of that. I think I had more to say about that, but I'm this moment, I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it. That means, here's part three. That means that this plan is certain. This plan is certain. I know what I was going to say. God just gave that to me. And part of the problem is that part two and part three are so close of originates in past eternity and therefore is certain. I can almost picture, you're going to have to indulge the humanization of the Trinity. But if you could imagine before time began, back before Genesis 1-1, here you have the one God conspiring, having a huddle of sorts and creating a plan. The Father, Son, and Spirit and them deciding ahead of time, you know what? Let's create a world and then let's blow it away with how awesome we are. You can picture the father saying, listen, let's show off. Create a world in which we will show off the magnitude of our mercy and of our grace and of our love. So the father says, I I will create a people, and those people are going to reject us. They are going to leave behind the fountains of living water, and they're going to turn to their own limited pleasures in our place. And then the son says, yes. And I will go down and I will become one of them in the most unimaginable accommodation of highest of high down to the dust of the earth. And I will walk with them. I will be one of them. And I will give my life for them to show them your love. And then the Spirit says, and I will breathe new life into those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, and I will make them alive with Christ. I will recreate them, and I will form them into a holy temple in whom we, Father, Son, and Spirit will dwell. To show it all off, to show off the magnitude of who he is. That is the plan, was the plan from the beginning. And it's a plan that if I understand certain portions of the New Testament correctly, it makes the angelic world stutter and stammer. Like they can't believe it. So it's, it originates in eternity past, before there was time. This was the, the plan of the three. And it is by nature of that certain. Paul said, says it's certain in a number of ways. But it's most explicit here in verse 11 when it says, In him, Christ, we, the people of God who have trusted in Christ, 
have obtained an inheritance, that's future, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. By the way, side note, he predestined us, and the ground of that predestination is not him looking forward in time and seeing your choice. It is according to his purpose and his pleasure. I don't know what's in the pleasure and purpose of God as to why he would choose me or you. That's up to him. But the ground of it here is that he having predestined according to the purpose of him who, and here's the point, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. This is sweeping. It includes everything. It's, it's not some things or big things that he works according to the counsel of his will, but all things. Everything in human and angelic existence, all things work to his will and his purpose. Good things, not so good things, moral choices, immoral choices, because God's plan is not conditioned or contingent upon any choice of man, demon, or Satan himself. No one can foil it, and anyone who attempts it ends up fulfilling it. Because even evil is bent into this plan of God. That he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things play into this plan. Now there are some who reject this. Others who want to modify it and say God is working all things, meaning all the big things, but not the small things. And there are others who may not want to modify it, but are uncomfortable with it because there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world. Now, for me, I'll just speak personally. For me, the idea that God is working all things brings me a tremendous sense of security and confidence and courage. I, I think of it like, a, like a God being a huge playwright who writes an enormous work called The Plan of Redemption. Stretches from eternity past to eternity future. And you and I were part of that big work, maybe a half a chapter, maybe even not that much, but we play a part in it. And it brings me tremendous confidence, security, and courage to know that my part is scripted. My past was scripted, my present is scripted, and my future is scripted. Some may have an intellectual hard time with that idea that our future, the future of God's people is scripted. That I am his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Works would he prepare ahead of time that I should do. Scripting. But think of the alternative. If God hasn't scripted the lives of his people. On the one hand, it means that if I screw it up, which knowing myself, I probably would, it means the burden of my life falls upon me. And not only if I screw it up, do I screw up my script, 
But because our paths over intersect, I end up screwing up other people's paths. Then the burden of this thing called the redemptive plan falls upon our shoulders. And that is a weight we are not able to bear. On the flip side, if I happen to be marginally successful and I don't mess things up, because I have written the script of my own life, I have determined my own future, and I do it somewhat successfully, then who gets the credits at the end of the book? Well, I do, which is a problem. The other alternative, not the other alternative, but the other hard part is how do we then account for and deal with pain, suffering, and, and flaws and failures in the Christian life? If we don't see it as scripted, then we can't see it through a redemptive lens. So what happens when pain and suffering come along? How do we see it? Do we see it as having divine purpose? Or do we see it as just a, an anomaly, an accident, a coincidence, a freak of nature? I mean, I know this, this particular truth is hard for people in pain, suffering, especially when you've either experienced it by the hand of another person or it's, it's close to you. What does a father do who has a daughter who's born with a congenital heart defect and he's got to watch his daughter's little tiny chest cracked open? How is he supposed to see that? Now the temptation might be there's no way God could have any part in this. But if you say that, then that means there's no purpose in it. And there's no meaning in it. And therefore, it's pointless. Suffering. That to me is far more tragic and fearful to believe that there's suffering without purpose than to believe the alternative of Ephesians 1. Namely that God is always good to his people and there's purpose and meaning in everything for the believer's life. So when life hits the curve and things are thrown into your life that totally throw you off balance, things that are painful and, and chaotic, he basically wants you to see that I'm there. And we know that God works for the good of his people and everything, not just some things, but everything, every detail. And what he says to me in, in, in the parts where the script goes sideways and I'm wondering, what, you're, what are you doing he, in effect, says to us, listen, child of God, listen, seek me, surrender to me, and trust me. I know you don't understand it. I do. And trust me, it is good. I see the picture, and it is good. That's what he asks us to do. Now, does that mean that, well, because there's objections to that idea that life is scripted that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Some would say, well, that makes for an inactive and irresponsible Christian. Well, if God does everything, so why do anything? I think most people who would say that don't really get it. The outside looking in. I think it actually works to the opposite. I think it actually, when it's gotten that, hey, God is in control. I think it energizes activity and responsibility. 
Like, for example, I was thinking this morning, we have a young Marine who's in Afghanistan right now, uh, uh, a, a, a son of a family that goes to this church. Most of you know him. And I was told over the last three weeks that one, he's had, like, bullets go by his head. He's hurt him. And that some of his, uh, some of his uh, fellow Marines have, have been killed. Okay, so put yourself there. You're in Afghanistan, and you don't know if there's a sniper over the hill. And you're told to be on this convoy. You don't know if you're going to get blown up or not. For the believer who trusts that the God that I serve and the God that I love, and more importantly, the God who loves me, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. And there's not a bullet that can hit my head until it's time. No one can take my life before it's time. And if it happens, it was his choice and I'm ready to go home. What is that conviction about the fact that God is in control of big things like bombs and small things like bullets do to a young Marine, but give him confidence and courage to engage? It doesn't produce inactivity or irresponsibility. It provides courage and confidence and security for God's people to engage the enemy and to do what we're supposed to do. To think that nobody's in control of that bullet or bomb makes for a very frightening experience. Did I hold my head up too high? Did I drive at the wrong time? You're reduced to a place of panic and fear, and God's people are not supposed to be living in fear, but in confidence. And it only comes from this truth that God's plan is certain. So does that mean that we're robots then? We're puppets, and God scripted so... There's no choice to the other way. To that, to that, I would simply say that, you know, the God of the Bible is not confined by our Western way of thinking, which is either or. We think if God chooses, I can't choose, or if I choose, God can't choose. We have put him in an either or box. And the God of the Bible doesn't fit that Western box. He determines the box. And that is he works out his purpose through the willful choices of people that are very will, willing and free choices. So when we pray, God's, God's work is being done. And when we do acts of kindness, God's work is being done. All of these things that he's guiding by his hands and he has determined ahead of time would happen. When we're reaching out, when we're doing acts of love and service, God is working it out through the willing choices of his people. And not only the good ones, but also the bad ones. I mean, the greatest crime in human history was not the Holocaust. The greatest crime in history was the murder of the only innocent person to have ever lived, namely Jesus. And we're told in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, that the conspiracy, the evil plotting conspiracy for which those men will be held, held accountable between Pontius Pilate and Herod and the chief priest and the people of Israel who gathered around and slaughtered him, we're told that they did, and I quote, what God's hand, plan and hand had predestined would happen. Their evil choices played into the Father's hand and brought salvation out of it. That's the kind of confidence that God's people need to have. God is not a plan A, then plan B person. He has one single plan centered on his son, comes from eternity. It's certain, and we live within the confines of that certainty. Rooted and grounded in his love for his people. 
which should produce a fourth aspect. And actually, that's, I'm thinking ahead here. But it's another thing that arises. If that third point was a bit dark for you, then this part shouldn't be. That this plan that he describes is of immeasurable glory. You can't take out a ruler, a yardstick. You can't take a rocket and fly to the end of it. It is immeasurable, immense, infinite. And one gets the sense when you read through these chapters that he's grasping at descriptions to describe the indescribable and imagining what is unimaginable and trying to comprehend what is incomprehensible. So you have these these wonderful phrases and statements that pepper throughout of like riches. And this is in the handout that's in your bulletin. Chapter 1, verse 7. Lavish grace. Chapter 1, verse 8. Immeasurable greatness. 1, verse 19. Fullness. 1, verse 23. Rich in mercy. 2, verse 4. Great love. 2, 4. Immeasurable riches. Immeasurable, incalculable riches. 2, verse 7. Unsearchable riches of Christ. 3.10, manifold wisdom. 3.16, riches of his glory. Love that surpasses knowledge and ends with this great glory to God here who does more abundantly than all we can ask or think or some translations say imagine. In other words, it utterly, this whole idea of the redemptive plan looked upon from the highest place of the divine high rise, it's nothing less than immeasurable. It's wonderful. You can't get your arms and and, and head around it. That's the way it's supposed to feel in the Christian heart. I mean, that's that's what Paul's trying to, to do for us. It's like he's a pilot in a big, huge plane, and we're ascending. And we're ascending into the stratosphere of of the unimaginable, incomprehensible, and through his descriptions, he's saying, look, and we're pressing our heads up against these little windows, trying to see what he's showing us. And it's utterly indescribable, is the sense you get. Now, now, for me, that is water to a soul that oftentimes, growing up, thought of salvation as something small and narrow. Sometimes growing up in a church, well, I should say there are advantages to growing up in church and there are disadvantages. Because my understanding of this thing we call salvation or redemption was almost something that you could fold up and you could put it in your pocket. Ah, I'm saved with no more elation or affection than saying, I got Giants tickets. In fact, it usually is the latter that gets more response, which is a reflection of the fact we don't really get it, that we oftentimes reduce and fold up salvation to a point in time or a decision we made or, or an event. I think perhaps in our effort to make the salvation and gospel as simple as possible to unbelievers, We have categorized it, defined it, reduced it down to its lowest common denominator, and in the process made it measurable. And there's a place for making it simple. But it is not measurable. It is immeasurable. That it's not this little present with defined edges. 
something called salvation like a Christmas present with a nice little bow in a form of a cross on top. There are no edges to this. It just goes on and on and on. It has no breadth. It has no length. It has no height. And it has no depth. And it surpasses human understanding. That's what Paul says. And if you take the time to just think about and grapple with some of the statements that he makes in chapter 2 and chapter 3, you're going to think to yourself, I just can't imagine that. Well, that's the point. Like chapter 2, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. This is one that I've been lingering on. It says that the Father, the Father put all things under the feet of Christ. All things. So he has made him the head over the entire universe, heaven and earth, the highest place. The Father has put all things under the feet of him and given him as a gift, given him as the head over all things to the church. It's like, what? He has given him the prize crown prince of heaven and earth. He has given him as head over all things to us. Like a father giving a groom to a bride. He has given him to us. And if that's not enough to make you go, wow, that's pretty amazing. Then the next statement is that which is his body, the church. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church, the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. In what sense, way, shape, or form is this sinner declared saint, going to be the fullness of Christ. I have no idea. And I don't think Paul did either. In chapter 3, when he talks about that he wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding so that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. What does it mean for, for finite human and someday resurrected people to be filled with not some, but all the fullness of God. I do not know. And that's the point. It's unimaginable. And that's the vision that we have to have of this thing called redemption and salvation. It should blow us away more than it does looking at the Grand Canyon, which is by comparison minuscule. He's blown away by it. That's how big it is and gargantuan and immeasurable. It is immeasurable. And that should produce the final. This is the concluding point, is that this whole grand design and grand plan that centers on the sun was from eternity past that is certain and it is immeasurable in its beauty and its grace. It was designed to produce spontaneous praise for God's people, and for the angels in heaven. Several times, he just keeps coming back to it. Why does all this, why is he doing all this? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. Then he ends these chapters with, you know, now to him who is able to do far abundantly more than all that we ask or think. Then he goes on to say, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's what it's supposed to do.
supposed to blow the doors off your soul and create a spontaneous sense of praise. It doesn't need a call, it doesn't need human effort, and it doesn't need or isn't done out of obligation. It simply calls forth the praise of God's people. It's even amazing how he opens up the entire letter in a position of worship when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He begins this letter with worship, and I don't think it was an obligation. I think it just came out of him as he was up on top of that divine high-rise, surveying the massiveness of this story and plan of redemption. And what's equally amazing to his worship is the fact that he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and praises God and tells of his plan while he's in prison, in chains, and in suffering. If Paul in prison and in chains and suffering, because of the grandness of the vision and the plan that's certain that no one else can thwart or foil, can worship the Lord and find the joy of the Lord despite his circumstances, then the same is offered to you and I. To maintain this gaze of looking through the plate glass window and staying up on the top and saying, this is enormous. It's from eternity to eternity. It is certain and it is glorious and immeasurable. And in that light, the human soul is lifted to a place of worship no matter where you are and no matter how difficult the pain or the problem is. That's where we need to be, flying high in the jet, looking through the windows. And then we find the joy of the Lord filling the sails of the human life. And we find ourselves confident and courageous to live the plan that he has set before us. So I just, I hope you will be praying because this is what the Spirit has to take these truths and drive them into the soul of this church family. But be praying that God give us eyes to see and embrace this amazing and massive plan and that we would see ourselves in it and live in the courage of the fact our God is an awesome God who has created it and will do it and will finish his work. And we will one day, as believers, lay our head down on our pillow when we pass and we will be at peace because we will have done exactly what the Lord has scripted us to do. Father, I pray for confidence and I pray for vision. I pray for illumination that these truths would not just be understood intellectually, but that they would be taken deep into the recesses of the human spirit and believed that they would become the rebar that, that props us up and allows us to live and see things as you see them, not as the world sees them, not as CNN reports them, and not as, as Fox News reports them, but to recognize you are a God who is big, who is in control, and one day you're going to show us the measure, the immeasurable glory of your plan come to light. And we want to trust in it in these dark times. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship.